0: Tonight, to actually turn over to John chapter eight, we had 1 Thessalonians chapter five as our theme verse or our text verse, if you will, last week, and that's kind of the theme verse for this whole series that we're talking about here: um, abstain from all appearance of evil. Um, but that's an easy verse; you probably already have it memorized. And I want you to get—we're going to we're get to John chapter eight in a little bit. Um, I think one of the things that uh, I need to mention before we start here is that I need to ask you for some patience as we go through this process, all right? There's a lot of things to talk about, and I can't give you everything all at the same time. And so there's going to be some things that we, that we mention, that we, that we bring up, that, um, that I may not have time to completely develop right at the moment, or there may be some things where you say, wait, why is that, What well, that doesn't make any sense, or why, why would he say that, and I'll come back to it later, and we'll talk about it later, um, just because I can't give you a, an eight-week or whatever series in, in one night, and so um, uh, patience as we go through these things will be helpful, um, and, and just file some things away in your mind, write some things down that, that may be a question that you have uh, for later that, that may end up being answered or it may not be answered and you want to ask it. But um, uh, I, I would encourage you to take some notes as we go through this as well. Um, I'm starting very broad and then we're, we're, gonna, we're working our way down to being specific. But I'm starting very broadly because I want you to understand why we are arriving at the conclusions that we are arriving at. And of course, uh, tonight, and, and I'm, I'm going to jump ahead of myself just a little bit to, to tell you what we're going to talk about tonight. Tonight, we're going to be talking about defining and developing our convictions um, what is a conviction, why do we have it, how do we arrive at those convictions? And so this is a much broader thing. Now, obviously, we are, we are in this series kind of focusing more on um, uh, standards of modesty and distinction, all right? And so uh, why do we dress the way that we dress? And, of course, it has to do with modesty. It also has to do with distinction. Um, we're going to get to that, but I'm not just going to throw all of that at you right now. And that's what I'm saying, patience as we, as we develop this process, because it's, it's going to take us some time, and I want to make sure that you understand wh- how and why we're arriving at that conclusion. But in 1886, John Milton Gregory wrote a book called Seven Laws of Teaching, and it's, uh, it's, it's kind of considered to be one of those books that uh, clarified the, the knowledge transfer process. How do you get knowledge from one person to another, and a lot of teachers over the years have read that book, and, and uh, he had seven laws, obviously, seven laws of teaching, and one of his seven laws is that the language used by the teacher and the student must be in common, and I think what he was referring to is if you're speaking English, your students have to be able to understand English. If you're speaking Spanish, they have to be, understand, be able to understand Spanish, but he expanded on that, and, and I think... Uh, he also meant that there has to be a mutual understanding of the meaning of the word or the term that's being discussed. Um, if I say flea, F-L-E-E, and you hear flea, F-L-E-A, we have a misunderstanding and you're going to be thinking about two completely different things, right? And so uh, the, the word that we're talking about or the concept that we're talking about has to be defined well enough for us to be able to understand what we're talking about so we are thinking in the same direction. Now, it's a principle of teaching, but I think this is, it's, it's more important and more difficult when you're talking about spiritual uh, subjects, and that's what we're talking about tonight. So we're going to talk about a lot of terms that you may have never heard before, or if you have, you may never have really understood what those terms meant before. Uh, either way, we need to make sure that we know exactly what we're talking about as we use them so that we make sure that we're on the same page with each of these things, and that's what I'm attempting to do tonight. We're going to be using terms like Convictions and principles and standards and modesty and distinction and other words that we need to make sure that we have the same definition of. Because at the end of the day, I really can't even hope to persuade you of a position if your understanding of that position and how I arrived at that position and, and what I mean by it is entirely different than what i understand it to be i can teach an entire series on something and you have a different concept of what i'm talking about and we can arrive at two completely different conclusions and that's what i'm hoping to avoid so our language has to be common and that's why in particular tonight i want to talk about defining what convictions are um, I, I want to make sure that i spend enough time explaining what i mean by a particular term what i understand that term to mean how that understanding is applied in in each of these lessons, if you will, as we develop them. So, tonight we're going to talk about convictions, all right? Um, we're going to define them, and then we're going to talk about how you arrive at or, or develop convictions based upon the Word of God. So, let's get right into it then. Tonight, we'll be to John chapter 8 in a second. I'm going to use that as a, as a little bit of an illustration to help you kind of understand what we're talking about, but let's talk then about convictions defined. Very simply, the definition of a conviction is something that I am convinced about something that I'm convinced about—that's what a conviction is. And so, the dictionary defines the word as a strong persuasion or belief, the state of being convinced. If you go into Merriam-Webster's dictionary online, um, it, it expands on that a little bit further, and I and I have a whole list of the words there that it, that it defines: opinion, view, belief, conviction, persuasion, sentiment. It means a judgment that somebody holds is true. But when it comes to opinion, all right. So so let's let's let's. See what that word conviction is all about, okay? When you're talking about an opinion, an opinion and a conviction are two different things, right? An opinion implies a conclusion that's thought out, but it's open to being changed, right? I can change my opinion on something, right? I, I, you know, each expert seems to have a different opinion, right? It's not based on fact. It's based on what they think it to be. But most times, it's open to dispute. Belief, that implies Often deliberate acceptance and intellectual assent, right? A firm belief in your Republican Party platform or whatever else, right? You have the firm belief, I'm, I, I, um, I've, I've thought those things through, I've deliberately accepted that this is the way that it has to be. Conviction, it says then, applies to a firmly and seriously held belief, all right? And you have all kinds of convictions, you know, some people are, con- you know, I'm, I'm convicted that that an animal life is just as important as a human life, you know, or I'm convicted that this is, is this, whatever. Um, but it apply, it's a firmly and seriously held belief. Persuasion suggests a belief grounded on the assurance uh, of its truth. I see the evidence. I'm persuaded that this is the way it is. You know, uh, he was persuaded that everything changes, whatever. A sentiment, and this is still from the dictionary, but a sentiment, it says, suggests a settled opinion reflective of one's feelings. Uh, but... Of all of those terms, we see that conviction is the strongest of all of those. Um, it's the firmest one. That's how the term is used in the wider world, a, a, a sense of a firmly held belief. I have this conviction, and it's not going to change, right? Uh, but not only do we see that in a dictionary, we see it in the way that the, uh, the Latin etymology of the word, and I'm not trying to get too deep here tonight, but... Uh, Latin etymology is how has that word been used historically? How has it, uh, uh, what are the roots of that word? And what does that word mean? And I know this sounds like we're getting very deep, but this is important because convictions has at its root terms that mean overcoming decisively or conquering something. Um, What is the something that you're overcoming or conquering? It's your doubts. I, I have no doubt in my mind that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me, right? Um, or I have no doubt, I'm convicted of that thing. I'm convinced, I'm absolutely convinced of that thing. And once that's done, you've arrived at a firm belief, a conviction, something that you are absolutely convinced about. I've seen God do too many things in my life to, to have any question whether or not there is a God, right? I'm convinced beyond, a reason, beyond any doubt that there is a God. It's a conviction, it's, it's a firmly held belief that I have. There's a, there's a clear similarity with the way that that word is used with a legal sense of the word. Um, you think about a ju- the justice system, you know, um, a, um, a jury gets up and convicts a prisoner of guilt, right? They are convinced beyond a reasonable doubt uh, or beyond, beyond any doubt with, without, it, what am I trying to say here? They're, they're convinced, Huh? Yeah, without reasonable doubt. That's not the way I'm trying to say it, but um, you you understand what I mean. The, the defendant was guilty. There, there is no, there's no question in the jury's mind. He was. They are convinced. They are that that he is a felon for whatever it was that he did that they convicted him of. Right? Beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the word I'm trying to look for. Um, beyond any reasonable doubt. Uh, but a, a person who has been convicted legally becomes a convict. They've been. They they're labeled. Um, by a jury of their peers as absolutely convinced about their guilt. And it's that sense of the word that we see it used in the Bible. The Bible uses the word convicted, and we see it there in, in John chapter 8. In this case, it was not a jury that was condemning a, an, another person's guilt, but it's actually when that person becomes convinced of their, of their own guilt. And that's, that's what happens to me directly and very personally sometimes, and, and we talk about it this morning even Uh, I mention it in in messages all the time, when the Holy Holy Spirit persuades me that I'm wrong about something, right? We say that the Holy Spirit convicted me in my heart, that I needed to make that change, right? And, And we use that term often in preaching and in reference to coming forward to make things right with God during the invitation of the Holy Spirit has convicted you about something that needs to change. And in John chapter 8, we see that, that example. Let's just read the passage in verse number 2. And early in the morning, he came again to, into the temple, talking about Jesus. And all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. When they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger, wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. Now, this is the only English word, uh, English use of the word convicted in the entire King James Version. Uh, but they were convinced in their mind of whatever it was that Jesus was writing on the ground. And, and I think this, is, this story is really interesting. I'm not going to take the time to, to talk about it, but Jesus, you know, hey, what do you say about this? What do you say about this? Jesus doesn't say anything. He just sits down and starts writing on the ground. Hey, we're asking you a question. What are you saying about this? It, what, should we stone her? That's what the law says. Is that what you're going to say that we should do? Should we stone her? And Jesus says, hey, all right. You don't have any sin, you cast the first stone. And notice that nobody picked up a stone and started throwing it at this woman, right? And then Jesus sat down and started writing on the ground again, and all of a sudden, this old, the, the oldest guy there, the, the, gray, the, the grayest Pharisee among them, his face probably turned beet red, and he walks away, right? And then the same thing with the next one. Oldest to youngest, and the last the little youngest one standing there, and all of a sudden, his face turned red, and he walks away too, and Jesus and the woman standing there by themselves. But what does the Bible say? It says there in verse number nine, and they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience conscience, went out one by one. So that, that they were convinced of their guilt. They were convinced of whatever it was that Jesus was writing on the ground. But the root word in the original language is elegcho. And I have it there for you to see, to see how it's spelled, but it's actually used 16 different times in the New Testament. And I think looking at it briefly is going to be helpful. Define, that word means reprove or expose, to be sternly admonished, likely using argument to convince or refute. It's translated in 16 other places in the Bible as rebuke, rebuked, tell fault, reprove, reproved, convince, convinced, and convinceth. One of the other uses is actually there in John chapter 8. Jesus, uh, in John chapter 8 and verse 46, you can look over there if you want to, he's He's squaring off against this crowd that's out for blood, and he said, which of you convinceth me of sin? It's the same word there that he's using, but later uh, we see essentially that the Sanhedrin would throw everything at him, and yet that statement still held true. He couldn't be convinced or convicted of anything because it was impossible to convince anyone that he had done anything because he hadn't, right? So there was nothing to convict him of, but to, to summarize, a conviction is something that I am convinced about. Generally speaking, my convictions are formed because the Holy Spirit convicted me about something, convincing me, conquering my objections to whatever it is that I am, you know, bringing up, conquering my doubts about that subject until I arrive at a firmly held belief. That's what a conviction is. Convictions are what we find from the Word of God. And I I, I don't want to get ahead of myself for the next few few weeks, but convictions and standards are are basically built off of each other, all right? I have a firmly held belief, all right? Okay, perfect example, all right? Let's just say that that, uh, the Bible says that a man should not have long hair, right? Well, what's long hair? That's kind of open for discussion a little bit, isn't it? But my conviction is that I believe that based on the word of God, a man should not have long hair. And so, to give you a peek into what we're going to be talking about next week when it comes down to standards, I set a standard to make sure that I don't drop below that conviction. So here's my, here's my conviction line, right? This is my conviction. A man ought to have short hair. But since we don't know what the Bible defines as short, then we set a standard to make sure we don't fall below that line. And that's where our convictions and our standards are based. But then it becomes important, wh- wh- how do you set your convictions? What are your convictions based off of? What should your convictions be? And so we've defined a conviction, but now let's, let's talk about how we develop a conviction, okay? Uh, when we're speaking of things that we're convinced about, we're speaking in the context of, of, of doctrine and practice, okay? Obviously, you can be convicted about a, convinced about a lot of things. I'm convinced that you know, there's corruption in government and all these kind of things. That's not what we're talking about tonight, obviously, right? We're talking about this in a spiritual sense. We're talking about it when it comes to convictions based on uh, what we should do and should not do in our spiritual lives. And so uh, what becomes important then is how you arrive at those things that you become convinced about um, or that you can become convinced about. Uh, That's honestly how some people come to different conclusions about convictions and ultimately the standards that are based on those convictions. Uh, there, there's a few right and a few wrong ways to arrive at those convictions. And I think the first thing that we have to say is we have to admit that it, it is possible to, to hold strong convictions, to be absolutely convinced about something and to build that sense of conviction on a shoddy foundation. Um, that's one of the reasons, philosophically speaking, if you will, that faith alone is not a good foundation for convictions. Oh, don't, what, what are you saying? Don't, 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 uh, don't back out on me yet. Don't we base everything in our Christian life on faith? Well, absolutely we do, right? I've never seen God. I've never seen heaven. I've never seen the cross. I've never seen Jesus, but I believe in those things, right? But it's just a belief. I can't base a conviction off of belief. Try, try this. I believe strongly in this, which proves that I'm right you believing strongly in that, does that prove that you're right? No, it doesn't prove that you're right. I mean, you, you think you are, and you're convinced of that, right? Um, but you can put your faith in the wrong thing. You can put your faith, faith in the wrong person. You can put your faith in the wrong ideas, and the list could go on and on and on. Now, you're, you, you are to be commended for your strong convictions if those convictions have, have been arrived at correctly and are resting upon the right foundation. Now, Put that thought aside for a second. All right, don't condemn me as a heretic. We're coming back to this. There, it has a lot to do with faith. All right, uh, our our everything that we do is based on faith, essentially. But when it comes to convictions, if all you're basing that conviction on is faith, then it's not a very strong foundation. Well, hopefully you'll understand what I'm what I'm talking about in a second. Let me give you an example. I would say that if you if you arrive at the same conviction as everybody around you, then you're almost certainly deficient. And what I mean by that is this, peer, peer pressure can have some minor good points to it, right? Um, but on a whole, it's almost always a, a failure at helping you to build a solid life. Uh, if you think and feel and see and believe what everybody else around you is thinking and seeing and feeling and believing, then what's gonna happen is your critical thinking skills are very weak at, at best. But if, you're, if, you're, if your current environment is spiritually oriented and everybody around you is doing these things and doing right and, and you're just doing it because everybody else around you is doing it, then when for whatever reason that environment changes and everybody around you stops doing right, then you're not going to be doing right anymore. You're, you're, you're not basing it on a, on a right foundation, you're basing it on peer pressure, you're basing it on what everybody else around you is doing. You're just a conforming Christian, and when your environment shifts for the worst, so will your life. Why? It's because you borrowed your convictions from your friends and your peers, and honestly, that's what I see as a huge problem um, amongst kids who grow up in good churches. They grow up in churches with solid convictions and good standards, and, and they do it because everybody else around them is doing it. Um, everybody at the church is doing. But as soon as somebody questions them on why they do it, uh, and as soon as they're no longer living in the environment where it's done, they, they instantly drop those convictions, which by definition means you never had that conviction in the first place. right? It's not a conviction if you're not so absolutely convinced about it that when you're no longer pressured into doing it, you don't still do it. right? If you're absolutely convinced that something is the truth, then it doesn't matter if you're the only one that's still doing it, you're going to be convinced of that truth. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you understand what we're talking about with with defining what a conviction is and then also having a conviction that's based on the wrong foundation? If your conviction is based on the wrong foundation, then essentially it's not even a conviction because it's going to change as soon as the foundation changes. So I think it's interesting that the same people who, who scoff at those who are silly enough to fall victim to the error of peer pressure, often fall victim to the same thing. They just call it by a different name. Uh, They become convinced of something because the person that's saying it has pull or influence over them, right? Um, A pastor ought to be respected, but you should not let your pastor form your convictions, right? Uh, That sounds like a, 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 a dangerous thing for me to say, maybe. I'm up here trying to convince you of something, and then I'm telling you, don't let me convince you of it. And I, and I don't mean it in that way, but as the shepherd of the flock where you have chosen to be led, this, it's, it's my job to lead you, right? Uh, you should be willing to be led if this is where God wants you to be. What God leads you here, and then have me preach something that's going to pull you away from holiness or pull you away from Christ-likeness. Now, hopefully, God leads you to a place where you're being drawn into that Christ-likeness, where you're being drawn into that holiness. Um, but when a message is preached or a lesson like this is taught, it ought to be something that you seriously consider the source. But what I'm saying by this is, if the reason you have a conviction is because your pastor told you that that's the conviction that you need to have, then it's not a conviction. You're doing it because you're being told to do it. You're, being, you're doing it because you're being told that that's what you need to believe, um, You've arrived at that conclusion for the wrong reason, and as soon as, for whatever reason, I'm not, I'm not your pastor anymore, uh, you're going to go and in, You're not going to go and believe in that conviction because it was never yours in the first place. So, if you have that conviction because I told you you need to have it, then by definition, it's not a conviction. It's not something that you're absolutely convinced of. Uh, same thing is true. You know, an expert ought to be consulted, but you should never let his word alone be what you know, bring you to the point of being convinced or a group of experts for that matter. If COVID taught us anything, it taught us that, right? Uh, everybody's the experts telling us everything we need to know about COVID and I, they were wrong in all of it, right? Um, but you need to be in the word of God. You need to be following up with what's being taught to make sure that you're not just being convinced by my words, but you're being convinced by the Holy Spirit. And that's why, you know, honestly, that's why I've said from the beginning, and probably will say it many more times, it's, my job is, is not to convince you of these things that we're talking about. My job is to present what I see in the Bible and let the Holy Spirit do the convincing, Right? Because if the Holy Spirit is the one that convicts you of these things, and the Holy Spirit is the one that changes your heart, and the Holy Spirit is the one that changes your mind, then it doesn't matter if I'm your pastor or, any, or somebody else is your pastor, you're going to have those convictions because you are absolutely convinced of them from the Word of God and by the Holy Spirit, not by somebody who told you that those are the convictions that you need to have. And so uh, it's going to last a whole lot longer, and it's going to have a much greater effect that way. But There's a ditch on the other side of that road, too. Sometimes the people who reject the mistakes of following somebody else do that, at the, uh, not out of wisdom, but out of arrogance. They're never, uh, nobody around me is ever going to convince me that this is right or this is wrong or, you know, no expert or no friend, nobody's going to form my convictions, right? They're, they're they, uh, you know, they're made of sterner stuff, they're strong-willed, they're, they're self-contained and they, they look inside themselves and find everything that they need, Right? Um, nobody's going to tell me what's right and wrong. I, I, I already know, right? But those people are fairly easy to spot. And, and what happens is when the subject of what you believe comes up, they're always talking about themselves, you know? Well, you know, drinking isn't nearly as bad as you narrow-minded Baptists. Pretend it is. I've been drinking a long time, and I've never been under the influence of alcohol, right? They're basing it on their experience. They form their convictions on the basis of their own experience. They're convinced of an, convinced of an action or a belief uh, is right because of the events in their own life, and if you're basing it on things that have happened to you or things that you've experienced or whatever else, then you're basing it on the wrong thing, and this is where the street runs both ways. I know people who have good convictions but have formed them in the wrong way, and it usually hurts the next generation very much because the next generation has their own unique experiences, right? Right? They have different circumstances that come up in their lives. They have different things that come up with them. And instead of, the, you know, they never learned the right foundation for good convictions. And instead, the next generation learned to look inside themselves. They learn to look at their experiences. They learn to look at uh, their thought processes. And then they form their own convictions. So then they end up with an entirely different set of convictions than a generation before them. Because they're not basing it on the right thing. They're basing it on experience and, and all of these other things. So in the end, they end up with an entirely different set of, of, of convictions than the previous generation, and then the parents and the pastor and everybody are looking around and everybody saying, what happened? We don't know what happened. Why is the next generation leaving everything that, 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 that was set as a foundation? Because the foundation was established in the wrong way. You held convictions and insisted that other people abide by those convictions, but you placed them on the wrong foundation, and as they got older... They based their convictions on other things, and they were never convinced of the same things that you were convinced of, and so as soon as there was, they were put to the test, they, they dropped them. Popular opinion, what your friends or peers think, what the experts say, your own reasoning, your own experiences. All of those are poor foundations for uh, your life's convictions. Why is that? It's because of the simple reason that, that they're all human, and everything human is faulty, right? To err is human. Isn't that what uh, whoever, Alexander Pope or whoever it was that said that? But... It's, you know, all of these foundations contain some truth or fact, but they're never all the truth and never all the facts. And so they're never completely correct, let alone always completely correct. So what then is the completely correct source for our convictions? A source that is not only entirely correct, but is always entirely correct. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3 to ask the question is the point, because once you arrive at the question, there can only be one answer, and that is the Word of God. And I, if, if I were to ask every single one of you at the beginning of this lesson what the foundation ought to be, I think that every one of us would say, the Word of God, right? And it should be. You're right. But the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verse number 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. But all scripture, the phrase sufficiency of scripture comes to mind. Everything we need, we find in the word of God. A lot of the things that surround the script, that we surround scripture with are helpful, right? We have commentaries. Those are helpful. We have uh, you know sermons and the illustrations of history and all of those things, but none of those things are necessary, let alone infallible, right? There, there are going. That's why you can take, you know, ten different commentaries and five of them say completely different things, right? That's why you can hear somebody preach a message on the same passage and you have two different interpretations of that passage because humans are fallible. But sola scriptura, right? Scripture alone. If we base everything that we believe on the word of God, (coughs) then we can't go wrong. Let me give you one more example. Turn over to Matthew chapter 5. I'm convinced that adultery is wrong, right? That's a conviction that I have. Adultery is wrong. Why? Because the Bible tells me, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, thou shalt not commit adultery, right? That's pretty simple, pretty plain. Thou shalt not commit adultery. But adultery is not just the act of, of physical intimacy, right? Jesus classified mental fantasies, if you will, as adultery when he said this in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 28, whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. So then my conviction that adultery is wrong has to include a conviction that, that looking at pornography is also wrong, right? Some, some people say that pornography is bad because it, you know, it dehumanizes people. They say it's bad because it it, um, um, it leads to trafficking humans and all of those other things. And, and those are certainly, I mean, those are definitely downsides of the, the pornography industry and all of that stuff. I agree with those conclusions, but I don't rest my convictions on those conclusions. I rest my conviction on the fact that the word of God says that adultery is wrong and that even mental adultery is wrong, right? There's a lot of other reasons why we would do this or not do this, but those reasons, even though they might be good reasons, are not a good foundation for where I base my conviction, right? My conviction has to be based on the Word of God. Let's just say that there was no downside to it anywhere, right? Let's say that there was no trafficking and there was no dehumanization and all of that kind of stuff. The Bible still says that it's wrong, whether I see downsides to it or not. And so my conviction can't be based on anything else other than what the Word of God has to say about that. Um, I rest my conviction that adultery is wrong based solely on the word of God. Uh, you, you, and, and, and this is where we, we come into conflict a lot of times with society. This, and this will, this will tell you where we are as a society, but uh, there's, there's a, uh, the number is increasing of the number of Americans that think that pornography is, there's nothing wrong with it, right? Uh, Gallup did a study, a poll in 2011, and, and found that 30% of the American people um, found nothing wrong with pornography. They came back in 2018, so this is 2011 to 2018, and that number had increased to 43%. Said there's nothing wrong with pornography. Um, at that rate, I mean, 2022, I don't know what that number is, but but a majority of, them, of the American people are going to find that pornography is unobject- uh, uh, unobjectionable, right? Nothing wrong with it. Go do it. That's that's the phrase now. You do you, right? If it makes you happy, then you go do it. If you want to be homosexual or transgender or whatever, as long as it doesn't interfere with my life, you just go do what you want to do. Well, that doesn't have anything to do with the Word of God, right? And my, my conviction that adultery is wrong and that homosexuality is wrong and that all of these other things are wrong is not based on, look what it's doing to society. It's not based on any of those things. It's based on, this is what the Bible says. It doesn't matter if public opinion says, hey, it's okay now, right? And that's, that's exactly what we're seeing happening in churches. How many, how many churches now are allowing homosexual pastors, right? How many, how many churches are performing homosexual marriages? Why? Is it a conviction that it's right or wrong based on the word of God? No, it's a conviction based on what society says. And that's not a conviction because you're, by definition, you're not absolutely convinced of it, number one. And number two, you're basing it on what everybody else says is acceptable, not what the Word of God says is acceptable or not acceptable, right? And so we arrive at our convictions not based on, well, you know, mindset has changed a little bit. Times have changed a little bit. Things aren't the same way that they used to be 50 years ago, right? We don't base our convictions on that. We base it on what the Word of God says. It doesn't matter what society says is now acceptable or not. It doesn't matter what society says is okay now or not, that they used to say was acceptable or not 50 years ago. It matters what the Word of God says. And I can promise you one thing. The Word of God is never going to change. So it doesn't matter what society said 50 years ago. The Word of God says the same thing that it said 50 years ago, and that did not change. And if my convictions are based in the right place, If my convictions are based on the word of God and not on some of these other foundations that will crumble, then my convictions are never going to change no matter what society says. Do you understand where we're coming from with that? So convictions are something that does not matter what happens 20 years from now. They're never going to change because the Holy Spirit convinced me of that thing. Now, that's where we open a small can of worms to address later, but if the Bible alone is the source of our convictions, then it becomes ultimately important that we're using the right Bible, because if we start with the wrong source, we're going we're gonna to end up with the wrong conclusion, right? It becomes ultimately important that we read the Bible. We can't use ignorance as an excuse for our lack of understanding. We can't use ignorance as our excuse for our lack of knowledge becomes absolutely necessary to study the Word of God so we can understand the principles and we can understand the convictions that we ought to have based on the Word of God. It becomes important to be in church that holds, the, that, that holds to the Word of God without political correctness or influenced by culture as the ultimate standard, and on and on we could go. So the, the, the convictions that we arrive at based on the Word of God are extremely important because they are going to determine what we hold as our standard for the rest of our life in faith and in practice. And that's how we arrive at our standards. And so our convictions have to be set based on the word of God, which we're going to begin to address next week. Convictions are the stuff of a solid life. Without without convictions, essentially, you're going to have a bunch of people that are running around as spineless as a jellyfish and not standing up for anything. And that's why we have churches in America that are not standing for anything. And as soon as, I mean, look, we, 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 we've seen it very, very clearly in the last five years, right? All of these things that are changing politically. And honestly, I, you know, I'm just being blunt that the Black Lives Matter uh, crowd had a lot to do with um, you know, the, the whole mindset of, of the gospel changing within churches, right? The gospel didn't change. People's minds changed. People's ideas changed. Their foundations changed. Why? Because they did not have convictions. They were convinced of something somehow, but it was, not so, it was not a firmly held belief, right? It was not something that, I don't care what the world does, we're not changing. They changed, which means they didn't have those convictions in the first place, right? And that's what I'm saying. A conviction is something that, once the Holy Spirit convicts you of that thing, once the Holy Spirit convinces you of that thing, it's not going to change unless the Holy Spirit comes back and says, hey, you were wrong on that. But if the Holy Spirit did it in the first place, the Holy Spirit's not going to come back and say you were wrong. So essentially, the convictions that you arrive at, if they're based on the word of God and if they have the right foundation, they should never change for the rest of your life. And then we take those convictions and we base our standards on those convictions. And that's what we're going to talk about when we we get back together next week. But turn over to Romans chapter four. We're done. It's not enough to have some and to hold them strongly. They have to be arrived at correctly. And so it has to be built on the right foundation. I think think Paul said it best 2,000 years ago. Romans chapter 4. Verse number 3. For what saith the scripture? That's the question we need to be asking on every single one of these issues. Oh, what is, what is society saying right now about that? Uh, what is what does the next church down the road say about that? What does is, what is this guy say? What does that pastor say? What does this commentator say about it, right? No, Paul goes to Romans, uh, or in, in Romans chapter four and verse three, Paul says, hey, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Because that and that alone should formulate our convictions. We're going to talk about a lot of principles um, and, and some, some different terms and things like that as we move forward. But convictions are, is the foundation of all of it. You have to be absolutely convinced from the Word of God that this is the way that it is. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of convictions that we hold, right? But every single one of our convictions cannot be based on what other people are doing, cannot be based on what has changed in the last 20 years, can't be based on anything else other than the word of God, and if our, if our convictions are based on the word of God, then it doesn't matter who your pastor is, it doesn't matter what the political temperature is, it doesn't matter how much the churches in America change, you won't, because the word of God is not going to change, and if your convictions are based on that, then they'll stay the same forever, and that's, where we need to, that's, that's what we need to have as our focus when it comes to our convictions. I hope that this is, this, this is block one, okay? This is step one, and we're going to be building some more steps off of these. So if you're not 100% understanding exactly what we're talking about, keep coming on Sunday nights, we'll keep talking about it. It's like the, the, the teachers in the, in the classes, right? Um, I, I just remember this growing up in, in Sunday school or wherever else, you know, I'm going to be there every week, right? There's no, I didn't have a choice. I'm going to be at church, and the teacher said... And the next thing that happened in the story was, come back next week and find out. I'm like, I'm going to be here next week. Just tell me what happens, right? But uh, for the sake of time, we'll, we'll take a little bit of time to go through this. And hey, if you have questions throughout the week or, or whatever, even if we're going to get to it, ask. I want, you to, I want you to understand it. I want you to know where we're going with this. And I want you to, uh, to be able to grasp these ideas as we go through them so that by the time we get to the end, you don't have a, a million questions, all right? But right? Let's pray, and then uh, we'll, we'll sing our song. We'll be dismissed tonight. Father, we love you. Give me a thank you so much for your goodness to us. I thank you for uh, an opportunity that we have. I, I pray that you would give wisdom as we go through this just to help us understand it. Well, this is a concept that honestly has, has been so lost in our American Christianity today, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that, that Christians today have, have so, so little desire to live for you, they, they, they want to look good to the outside world. They want to look good to the other Christians around them, but they want to live their lives the way that they want to live them. And I pray that, that our desire would not be to impress anyone other than you. I pray that our desire would be to be as close to you as we can, to be as Christ-like as we can, to reflect the glory of God as closely as we possibly can. And God, that you'd give us understanding, that you give us wisdom as we look into your word, as we go through this, and that we'd arrive at the same conclusions, that we'd arrive at the fact that you want us to be Christians, inside and outside every single day of our lives so that you can use us for your glory. I pray that you'd give us a church full of people that can really be used for your glory to reach this community for Jesus Christ. Thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.